Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure today. So this is Jake McClure. This is The Personal Wealth Coach. I've got some disclosures to give. It sounds like the station just put a weird message on about the program being paid for by the personal wealth coach. We need to talk to them about that because we buy advertisements. We don't buy, they haven't fired us from the program, but we've been doing this for 25 years, 26 years now through multiple owners. And we've just continued to do it. There's no quid pro quo that I'm aware of. So that's one of the disclosures we generally give. We don't pay for the program. Um, we pay for advertisement on this at market rates on this station, and we've been doing this for a long time. So that's odd. We're going to talk to the to the folks at Town Square about that. That's weird. Uh, next is that the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this program. It is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. What does that mean? Um, it doesn't mean that the SEC thinks that the firm or the program is in some way anointed by any higher authority. That's just who regulates the firm. Now, um, why is that coincidental? We've been doing this a long time on the air. We can't give investment advice on the air. We don't know everybody that's listening. Everybody that's listening doesn't know us. Uh, there's privacy issues, all that good stuff. So Investment advice is supposed to be issued at a fiduciary level. It means in the best interest of the client, not just the best interest, but in, in many cases, the sole interest of the client. There's understood compensation, but that is fully disclosed. So what does that mean? Uh, it's supposed to be the person that you can trust with, with giving you advice that isn't doing it for a prop, profit motivation. Uh, the profit motivation is there for ongoing advice rather than for doing a thing, uh, doing a trade or buying a thing. Uh, it's not commission-based, fee-based. So uh, can't give that on the air. So what, what am I doing on the air if I can't do that? Well, hopefully education. Hopefully I'm going to tell you some things today that you didn't know. Uh, I may tell you a lot of things today that you didn't know. I've got a lot of stuff lined up uh, historically to talk about the history of the banking system and why it exists and what were the major scandals and catastrophes that led to the rules that we have now and how today kind of rhymes that. So we'll be talking about that later. Education, good stuff. Hopefully it'll help you in decision-making in the future. Uh, we uh, get our, our, our data from sources that we deem to be reliable. Uh, we don't guarantee it. We don't warranty it. Um, uh, what we do warranty is that anything I say uh, is said by me and that anything I don't say is generally incomplete. Let's see here. I think I got all the big ones. So I've got a question out there from Inquisitor John. He is our most faithful and loyal questioner. And it's, I don't know what we're going to do if you ever stop asking us questions, John, this is, I know it's, it's a lot of weight on your shoulders, but this is, you always ask good questions. All right. Okay. He says, please explain this and its impacts. He's talking about mark to market. And on the picture, 
Uh, it's an opinion piece. He knows we're going to comment. This is an opinion piece. Of course, I'm going to comment. We don't like opinion pieces. They are often really weighted with opinion and much less in the way of fact. However, in this case, the question in point is a great question. We can talk about this. It's the, the article, is its headline is about those safe with little single quotes around safe uh, SVB treasuries. Um, and it goes on to talk about what happened in a very opinionated way in the global fin financial collapse of or catastrophe of 2008 about you know the derivative holding bonds that were packed in those banks and and now we just we don't have any of those horrible things we've got these very safe US treasuries in there and still it happened and in the middle of the article John has circled a thing that says the mark-to-market requirement for liquid assets should give banks and regulators a clear view of the value of their liquidity cushions. We went from a pretty lay person speak uh, article to suddenly we're talking about uh, liquidity ass liquid assets and uh, a clear view of the validity of their liquidity cushions. It almost sounds like we're talking about a shoe commercial. Do you have good liquidity cushions? Oh yes, it's very comfortable. What does it mean? Well, in order to answer that, I have to tell you about how things are valued. I know this is a very basic concept, but this is really, really fantastic. If you're buying something that people are buying all the time, you know what the value of that thing is, at least when you buy it. If you're at the supermarket and you see a can of green beans, there's not a different price on every one of those cans. It's the same price for every one of those cans. That's the same label and the same type of green beans. Well, what's it worth after you buy it? No, nope, I don't know. There's not really a market for selling it to somebody else. You could sell it for more. It's probably worth less. What does that mean? Well, we just say the value of it is what we paid for it. If you ever have that conversation, what is this, green, what is this can of green beans worth? Well, I paid X for it, whatever that is. Well, that's really hard to figure out what the value of the green beans are because there's not really a market for it. That makes sense. Okay. The same is true if you buy a lot of something. So if you buy 19 million acres of Florida swampland and you bought it for, uh, let's say, uh, $30 billion. I'm just throwing numbers out there. There's no reasonable prices being used. Don't worry about that. $30 billion. Well, what's it worth a year later? I don't know. 19 million acres of swampland doesn't sell very often. And that's how you generally figure out what the value of what you hold is, is what did other people pay for it recently? It doesn't matter if it's your house or a stock or the bank account. The value of it is based on what people are paying for it right now. Well, that's an easy market though. When you have a stock that's on a stock exchange and it's trading in you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of shares a day, yeah, you could say, I know what this is worth right now. You may not be able to sell it for that price right now, but you have a piece of inf information that's hanging out there. Well, what about something that becomes valuable later that's less valuable now? Well, how would that work? Well, if you give a loan to somebody um, and they, they're going to pay it back to you in a balloon note. They're just going to give you all of it in 10 years. 
So you give them $10,000 and they're going to pay you some interest on it every month. Here you go. Here's five bucks or whatever every month on your $10,000. But in 10 years, you're going to get all 10,000 back. So how could that be ever worth worth less than $10,000? Well, let me give you an example. So you've got $10,000 and uh, and you find somebody that really, really wants to borrow it from you. And they say, I'm going to pay you 3% on this because that's a great rate and, and you're my friend. So uh, we'll make a contract for it. We'll make it even the government. Hey, the government's a good safe bet. I'm going to give them a contract. I'm going to loan them $10,000 for 10 years at 3%. They're going to pay me back. I know they will. So you've got a $10,000 value and you've got this interest coming in. So it's worth actually more than $10,000 if you think about it. Well, that interest may or may not be something that you add to the value. You say I've got $10,000 and it's paying me some stuff. Okay. Well, then interest rates go up. And now the government is saying, I'll pay you 5% if you give me $10,000. Well, that doesn't affect your contract. You've got a $10,000 contract. They're paying you interest on it. It's worth $10,000, right? Yeah. Until you go to sell it. Then you go to the market and you say, hey, I've got, I, I need to get some, my $10,000 back. It's perfectly safe here, but it's paying 3%. And I know everybody else is paying 5%, but it's still safe. Well, nobody wants to buy it when they're only getting paid 3% if they can use the same risk and get 5%. Why would they buy a 3%? That doesn't make any sense. And hold it for 10 years, you're definitely going to want to get the higher interest rate. It's ultra safe. So why wouldn't you do that? Well, they do, which means if you go to sell that perfectly safe loan, that contract that says the government owes me $10,000, you have to discount it until what they're getting is the equivalent of 5% on the $10,000. You have to bring the price down to the interest makes sense to whoever's giving you the money. It's still ultra safe. If you hold it for the 10-year period, you get $10,000 back. Well, in the bond uh, academia, not so much in the bond market, but sometimes, there's a term called duration. And if you imagine a teeter-totter, I know those don't appear in many playgrounds anymore for safety reasons, but most of our listeners still know what a teeter-totter is. And you imagine that teeter-totter as a timeline, 10 years, and you can mark it down by every, every three months, they're going to pay you some interest. Well, imagine in your mind, if you just put a little stack of pennies, you measure out that teeter-totter to be 10 years long, and you go in and you put a stack of pennies of the interest on each of those quarters, each of those three-month periods. So you've got this long stack of little pennies going across the teeter-totter. But at the end of, the, of it, you have a big stack because that's when the whole, whole bunch of it comes back to you. Well, if you could figure out where the teeter-totter balances, it's going to be a lot closer to that big, big stack at the end. That is what's called duration. And the closer that duration is, the lower the number that is, the closer in time it is to you, the less impact interest rates have on the teeter-totter, if you will, on the value of, of your bond. Because you're going to get 10,000, if, if you already waited nine years in six months, you've only got six months left till, they, till the government gives you your $10,000 back. Well, it's really hard to accept less than $10,000 for it now. 
You only have to wait six months. Come on. You get a little bit less than 10,000 now. But somebody just waits the six months and they get that back. So then you get all these other weird calculations about yield to maturity. Okay, what is that about? Why am I bringing this all up? John, I haven't forgotten your question. I know this is long-winded, but I think it's a good answer. When the bank is told you've got to list what the value of your reserves are against the value of your deposits, it's called mark-to-market. So if they've got a bunch of stuff that's maturing in eight or nine years or 10 years, they have to mark that value down if the interest rates have come up. And if it's marked down enough, suddenly the value of what they own is a portfolio underneath their depositors that's there to back up their depositors should they all want to go out right now. It becomes less than the amount of money that the depositors have at the bank. And uh, if you've listened to us over the last year or so during the different crypto collapses and so on, and we've talked about marking the value that the portfolio has to the market, it's, it's universal of, hey, this is great. There's problems with it. You, if you mark to, to the market, what is that 19 million acre of Florida swampland worth right now? We don't know. That kind of ownership, by the way, is called alternative investments. When we say they're illiquid, it's because if you go to the market with 19 million acres of swampland, it may take you a while to find somebody to buy it. It's a pretty niche market. So that's pretty illiquid. That's called an alternative investment, and they're almost impossible to mark to the market. That's one of their dangers. You may believe that you have a great value there, and then suddenly you don't. One of their great uh, rewards that people talk about is you may believe that you have a certain value in there and suddenly it's a lot more and you don't know. So it's like winning the lottery all at once. And that's another example of mark to market the lottery and all the advertisements, you know, they're telling you 259 million is the jackpot, but is it really? Well, not if you take the lump sum, oh, significantly less. If you take the lump sum, everyone should know that. Well, why? What's the value of it? Well, it's not marked to market, obviously. It's marked to what they believe the long-term value of that thing is. Well, that's what the banks would like to do with the 10-year loans. Okay, so why are these 10-year loans dangerous? If the bank has a bunch of people that want their money right now, and those 10-year loans right now are worth less than $10,000, how do they get money back to the depositor? Well, they got to sell those assets but now they're running out of money rather than keeping even with the, with the withdrawals. And when that occurs, they have to slow down their sales. They have to close their doors and say, hey, guys, wait, let's have some time here for our assets to really be worth what they're worth. Well, now it's time to go back in time. Back, 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 back in time. Has this stuff ever occurred before? Yeah, it has. It's throughout history ever since we've had one person holding the money for other people, that person or that entity or that vault has lost money somehow and not had it. There's, there's never been a time when we, I mean, go back to the earliest of our nomadic existence. We're coming out of the cave and we left Gungchuk in charge of holding all the meat. And, uh, and he went off and took a nap and a bear came and ate it all. Gumchuck, what did you do? We're going to hold you accountable. There should be some regulation around holding the meat. It's, it's throughout time. We had some really big events that took place. I'll give you 
uh, a few as an example. So in, in the early 20th century, 1907, we had a huge banking collapse. It went across the country. Um, it affected the rest of the world as well. It kind of came from the rest of the world. But in the United States, it took, we didn't have a central bank. So it took one man, J.P. Morgan, the person, not the company, stepped in with personal fortunes and bailed out the banks. He made a tremendous fortune off of this because the banks all owed him a bunch of money and he came in with, with short-term cash at the time that they had long-term bonds. Okay, So he dumped all this money into the market. The banks thanked him. The collapse was uh, stopped. It didn't continue. There was enough of one that we still call it a collapse. But he shored up the banking system and built it back up. And then the Federal Reserve Act happened. Uh, and then we come forward in time, Federal Reserve's existence, and then 1929 hits. And you think, well, the Federal Reserve's there. We're not going to have another banking collapse. But in 1930 and then again in 32, we had a whole wave of banking collapses. Last week, I quoted Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life and his George role as he's telling people at the savings and loan. That's when that was taking place. That's what that was. So this banking collapse took place all across the country. And a few years later, Congress said, we need to do something about these, these stocks and these banks. So in 1933, this is a big deal. Two law, two big, big laws got passed. One was called the Banking Act and one was called the Securities Act. The Banking Act has been named Glass-Steagall because there were two senators that had sponsored the bill to get it done, and it was Glass and Steagall. Uh, hang on to that for a minute because as we go forward in history, it loses the name, the Banking Act, and just becomes the Glass-Steagall Act. There's an echo in history coming up. Okay. So 1934, we say, these are, this is how you sell securities. 1933 said, well, this is a security. 1934, we said, how do you sell it? So it's the Securities Exchange Act. This is when the SEC became an entity to regulate these securities fraudsters that were telling you you were buying 1% of the company when they'd already sold 140% of the company. Well, that doesn't make sense. There's no math in there. So that's fraud. Well, the SEC was developed to try to stop that to say, you can't do that stuff. Okay, this is direct reaction to the collapses and the fraud. So if you imagine the fraud that's taking place at FTX and say that was just taking place across the stock exchanges, it was. There were people involved all throughout it that were they didn't hold their customers' assets separately from their own. Same stuff. It's identical stuff, just different types of ownership. So we passed these laws, Banking Act and Securities Act of 33, and then the Securities Exchange Act and the Credit Union Act of 34. Credit unions are not-for-profit banks, so they should be all kind of treated a little bit differently than banks, but they have a different standard, so they have a different type of insurance than the banks, but it's equal. And, and you can't say it's exactly the same because there's different wording. But the levels of insurance and the types of ownerships on the accounts are very much the same. And they're all backed by the U.S. Treasury above the insurance premiums that have been collected from all of the credit unions and all of the banks to fund that insurance. Okay, so that's a lot. Then you come forward in time and we revoke Glass-Steagall around the year 2000. Um, so what, what does that mean? That's the Banking Act, remember? And it, and it required that banks get no more than 10% of their profits from the stock market, 
from the equities of the world. So they couldn't really be investment banks. An investment bank got all it. I mean, that's that's like JP Morgan. They were if they were doing stocks and bonds, then that's different than Chase Bank, which was a commercial bank, and you just did mortgages and you put your deposits there. It's ultra safe. Well, in 2000, the law got changed. There now we have JP Morgan Chase. I'm not recommending them above anybody else, believe me. I'm using them as a good example. So we've got a commercial bank and an investment bank, and they combined into one ownership that says we do mortgages and we do stocks and bonds. Okay. So coming forward a little bit, it also removed a lot of the inhibitions against banks taking your mortgages and making them into securities so they could sell them on the stock and the bond market. So this was the advent of the mortgage-backed security. That wasn't Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. It was Wall Street's version of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And a lot of you that were alive during this time period remember this. This is when the global financial crisis started because the rules weren't written on how to regulate that yet. We said we're not going to do the way we used to, but we didn't have a new way of looking at how the loan from a mortgage transmitted into a security and how those securities were then remixed. So the derivative market was terrifying. And that's kind of the big key that caused the global financial crisis, the banking financial collapse that led to the Great Recession. Okay, so what did we do about it? Well, we passed the Dodd-Frank Act. Well, what did that do? Well, it reinstituted a bunch of Glass-Steagall. It took a bunch of things and said, hey, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to give some limitations on how the assets are valued, and we're going to call this stuff mark-to-market, and we're going to regulate and give stress tests to banks that are above $100 billion in assets because that's too big. We don't want you to fail. Okay. So when was that passed? Well, 2009. So if you think it took from 2029 and, or, or 1929 and 1930 to 1933 to pass an act, you come forward to today, the collapse of 2008, and we got the law passed in 2009. We were, Congress is on the ball. They're passing laws, coming out quick. They're, they're better than they were 100 years ago, maybe. <laughs> come forward a bit. We have this very stable banking system for over a decade, 2008 to 2018, very stable. We're not having banks collapse at all. So if you recall, both Dodd and Frank were famous before the collapse for saying don't regulate, and then after the collapse for saying we have to regulate them. And then in 2018, we had another law that got passed. So Dodd-Frank is like the Glass-Steagall Act returned, only we've just replaced Dodd with glass or glass with Dodd and uh, <laughs> Steagall with Frank. Well, we got another law that was passed in 2018 that revoked a big chunk of it. It was called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, abbreviated as EGRRCPA, because who would think that history will ever remember this thing? And that pulled back a lot of the protections on the mid middle-sized banks. Well, what were the protections? Well, the stress tests got moved from $100 billion in assets or in, in deposits to $250 billion in assets or deposits. That's a big, big deal. Um, and by a big, big deal, uh, well, I'm sorry, from $50 billion to $250 billion. That's a huge jump. Um, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank 
was a young pup at that point, a very tiny, tiny new bank. And its CEO was a big part of pushing forward this act. Um, Dodd was very famous at this point for saying, we went too far. Uh, we need to pull back, ratchet back on uh, the amount. We're putting banks in, in, in danger here. So this is 2018. And in the five years since then, SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, has gotten to $220 billion. That's still $30 billion below the stress test level. And it got there three years ago and just stayed flat. So it went from very little, very tiny in the deposits to 220 and then stopped. They didn't want to take on any more big assets because if they did, it was conceivable that they'd go up above the stress test mark and then they'd have to do that stuff. So obviously the regulatory issues were a problem here. But underneath it all, this is an interesting phenomena. Silicon Valley Bank could have continued to operate without any problems had a run on the bank not occurred. It's because a portion of their assets in those longer term stuff that it takes more money to pull them back in, that you lose money by selling these longer term things. It wasn't the majority of their assets. It was a, a strong minority of their assets. And on a normal business day, they're not liquidating those. But then a bunch of people, and this is the next question I had from John, that Twitter was going off with its wild tweeting about the dangers because the report came out that the, that the long-term loans were le worth less than the deposits at this moment. A bunch of venture capitalists started talking about this. Peter Thiel uh, of, of PayPal fame and uh, as, a, as a venture capitalist, he's well-known. He, he's telling his friends, hey, we need to get out of here. He's telling his compatriots, we need to get out of here. Look, it's shaky. and I don't want to be leaving all of my stuff above the FDIC limit there. So he and a bunch of the other venture capitalists all left at once. And I said this last week, it's pretty important as, an, as a piece of knowledge about banks. No bank can survive a 40% of its depositors run on the bank. It, they, it's not possible. If 40% of the depositors show up and want their money on the same day, no, the most healthy bank in the world could not survive that because that's not how banks function. They don't have your money. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it wasn't in Joe's house or in Sue's house. It was in some super new technology startups um, growth fund money for hiring new employees and buying new equipment to prototype something that doesn't exist yet. But it's still the same concept. So this is a long, long conversation. I've had a lot of questions about, was it legal to, to tweet about this? And I'll, I'll answer that stuff. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get whether it's legal or not. But I'll talk about what consequences exist for that sort of activity or no consequences. And I've got another bit on that. And I think it's important uh, to, to hear about it. Is there some, the question that I've had a lot of is, is it legal? Is something going to happen to those people that were tweeting about the bank failures, about get your money out before the bank fails? Um, now you can hear all kinds of legal opinions on that. I'm not a, an attorney. Um, there were a series of laws in uh, California and a lot of state-level laws that said if you talked about a bank failure with malice, like get out of the bank before it goes down when you didn't know if anything was wrong or not, that that was illegal. 
Well, that got kicked out in California for violation of free speech. Um, you've got libel laws on the civil side. And if you're doing it with the intent to make the bank fail, and that's a hard thing to prove, then uh, you can get in trouble. But the thing is, if the bank fails, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's hard to say that you weren't just warning everybody to get out first. It's kind of like uh, in the pandemic when everybody was hoarding toilet paper and there was no toilet paper on the shelves anywhere. The people that hoarded it were like, I'm so smart. I bought up all the toilet paper before it disappeared. And my answer to them was, you're the reason why it disappeared. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you bought it all before it could all get purchased, yeah, you got ahead of yourself. <laughs> well done. Um, this is the same in a banking run. Um, because it is still a supply and demand situation and because of the regulations we have on banking. So I said there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, about whether it's legal or not. It is legal in a lot of ways. And there's a great sort of funny, sort of terrifying moment that took place in 1932. Sort of terrifying because it's just amazing. So I'll give you a little, um, it, this took place in Shanghai, China. So I'll give you a little uh, where we are in history. 1931, Japan had taken Manchuria, and they'd been pretty clear they're coming for Shanghai soon. So 1932, um, Shanghai was the, this isn't, isn't really colonialism because the Chinese had like an enclave in, in Shanghai where the foreigners did their trade. So all the Chinese merchants would come to Shanghai to trade with the foreigners, foreigners being Europeans and Americans. Um, some of the local uh, Asian economies also traded there. So the Chinese were very much, you can't come into our country, here's an enclave. Well, the Japanese were taking China, and there's a bunch of European banks in Shanghai. Well, to do business in Shanghai, you can't, you couldn't at the time use the Western currency. It's kind of weird setup that they had the banks of the Western world had to establish their own bank paper. Basically, an IOU to their customers is what checks came from. It's what paper money came from is here's an IOU. I'll pay you back when you present this. It's a bearer bond, if you will. And that's how all the business was done in Shanghai was on bank paper. And there were about a dozen major banks from all across the world with big facilities there. And as you would imagine, a lot of those banks were storing paper from the other banks. So these notes, these IOUs from the other banks, and all of them got this, this is totally hilarious uh, from a historical perspective. All of those banks got the same idea during this time period. We're going to hoard the other bank's paper, and it's supposed to be paid on, on, on the deposit. So when we go and present them with the paper, they've got to give us actual something in either Western money or, or gold or silver. And silver prices were going nuts because of the war. Silver prices were way, way up. So all the banks were hoarding the other bank's prop, uh, paper without the other banks really knowing that they were also doing it. So all of them thought they had the same genius idea. And then the evacuation order came out from all of the embassies, it came through Telegraph, and they had, you know, the big warnings came out. The, the Japanese were coming. The fleet was on the way that we were going to have a blockade, and the 
and the army was marching. So, and the Chinese were in the middle of a weird civil war at the time. So there was no real defense against the Japanese coming. So this is what happened in Shanghai on the day of the evacuation. All the banks sent carriers. By carriers, I mean people carrying poles with big chests of money, paper money on them to the other banks to demand back the specie, the gold or the silver from the bank that they're demanding. But all of them were doing it at the same time. So in essence, all of them were trying to do an orchestrated run on all of the other banks simultaneously. And it all canceled out. None of them failed because they just returned the paper that they'd been hoarding in return for the paper the other side had been hoarding. And it was this massive fiasco. And the accounting for it all equaled out at the end and no, no bank failed. So it was like a run on all the banks by all the banks in, in essence, its own enclave. It didn't follow any country's rules. The Chinese said, this is your area, but no, but it was a bunch of countries. So nobody was really in charge of regulating the banks. And the net result was nothing. They all left. None of the banks failed. The Japanese came. That had a big result. China was basically taken from one into the other by the Japanese. But that that's a little picture of how normal this stuff is in history. We always look at it as, whoa, that's weird. What what just happened there? But it's it is such a human response. So some other things happened this week that look like that in the last week before it. Um, First Republic, another bank, started looking like it was going to fail. And then we get this announcement from a consortium of the big banks, bunch of them, all jump in and said, we're giving you $30 billion. And this is the piece I said hasn't been reported yet. I've been looking all over for it. The Federal Reserve Bank um, gives a, 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 a weekly number on the credit and liquidity programs and the balance sheet. The balance sheet, how much money it has on hand. Now, the time it says it gives it out, it says it's Updated at noon Eastern day, uh, Eastern time on the day following the publication of H4.1, which is typically published at 4.30 ET on Thursdays. So it's not easy to follow this unless you follow it regularly. The Federal Reserve took on $300 billion on its balance sheet this week. I don't think many more banks are going to be failing. That's an important piece. They're taking $300 billion, and I would bet that that $30 billion loan from that bank consortium has a $30 billion loan behind it from the Federal Reserve to those banks. That's how the bank um, relief took place in the Great Recession, is that the Federal Reserve backed loans that were given by other banks. And that's done in a very private setting. But $300 billion, I think a big chunk of that is also probably being loaned to the FDIC. And this is why the banks uh, are honoring all of the deposit instead of the limit at the FDIC limit. So there's some interesting stuff happening there. We probably don't have time this hour to talk more about it. We can talk more next hour. I'd love it if you guys could send me some questions. Uh, email address in here is jake at tpwc.com or jake at tango papa whiskey charlie or the personal wealth coach um, we're about out of time for this hour if you'd like to talk to us off the air uh, we actually do 
we're in the business of giving fiduciary investment advice to people generally high net worth or trusts or foundations. Um, and the phone number for that locally, we've got voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week is 254-947-1111. That's 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-PLAN. That's 800-914-7526. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can uh, get our newsletter going back lots of years there. You can sign up for it. You can listen to our radio program going back a long ways. Uh, you can also email at jeff and or jake at tpwc.com. And we read that stuff. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>